would go ahead and open a Bible to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23 is where we'll be studying. Good to see you this morning. Uh, normally, this is the time when Zach preaches. He is typically on in this slot on the first Sunday of the month, but Zach is in Pine Bluff preaching this morning, so he and I have switched places. And uh, just so you know the inner workings of our schedules, um, typically on the second Sunday month, the sun, Sunday of the month and this time, we'll do the Q&A. I didn't want to do the Q&A this morning. I want to save that for next week so that we can have some regularity since we messed it up last month. So he and I have just switched. So the third Sunday, Zach, uh, Lord willing, will be here preaching in this time. But that means that right now I'm going to do a regular study of Matthew chapter 23. So verse 1 of Matthew 23 says... Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works, or but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where they completely missed the point? You were talking about one thing and they understood something completely different. I was thinking about this, and I, I tried to call Sarah, because typically when I reach this point in my sermon writing, I, I call Sarah and I say, hey, did we ever do this? Do you remember anything like this? Because I forget things like that, and Sarah remembers everything like that. The problem was, Sarah didn't answer my call. So I had to turn to Google, and Google helped. Um, this is what I found. If, if you Google missing the point, this is the kind of thing you get you get Crest mouthwash that has 24-hour protection, but you have to use it two times a day. You get a connect-the-dots picture where the dots are already connected. And this was my favorite. Uh, you have breaking news on CNN that the Titanic sunk 102 years ago tonight. Breaking news. I think we're missing the point of news breaking when we're breaking news about something that happened 102 years ago. Missing the point. So I got this little picture that has someone who painted in the right turn lane, turn left. Sometimes we miss the point, right? Sometimes there is an intention or a goal or something that we should understand, and we take it entirely the wrong way. What happens in Matthew 23 is that Jesus is pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees. And if you had known scribes and Pharisees, if you, we were alive in Jesus' day, these would be the people who were the religious leaders that we would look up to. We would have respect for them. If we had a Bible question, we would go to them. And we would think, you know, if the Pharisees do it, that's probably really solid. And Jesus, in this chapter, he just rakes them over the coals. He does it usually in this chapter in the form of woes, pronouncements of the things they were doing that were wrong and that they are going to deserve judgment because of that. And I believe that if you're going to sum up Jesus' criticism of the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, it would have to be with something like missing the point. That there was a point to what God said and what God expected of them. And they were, even though they were trying to be religious, and I believe mostly from good motives trying to be religious, they had missed God. And so if, if you and I want to serve God, I think we have to acknowledge that the attitudes and the dangers, the pitfalls that the Pharisees fell into are still around. And these attitudes still exist. And it's possible for us to miss the point just like they did. 
So it seems to me that we have to look at this chapter not just as something about them and their problems, but as something that can apply to us and express to us some dangers we have of missing the point. I don't want to miss the point that God's trying to give to me through his word and what God expects me to do and be as a disciple of Jesus. So if I do do that, then I end up inheriting or standing to inherit the same woes and the same judgment that they inherited. So I want to take just a few minutes this morning in our time and look through this chapter. Let's start by reading Matthew 23, the first 12 verses here. Matthew 23, verse 1, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you're all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted." So I'm going to call this section, uh, Seek Humility, Not Honor. That's the idea in these verses. Now, he begins by saying, because the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, he says that in verse 2, listen to what they say, but don't pay attention to what they do, because they're going to talk better than they do. So that's verse uh, verse 3 there. Uh, They preach, but do not practice. So What he's going to say, now in a minute he's going to clarify, some of the things they're teaching are not to be followed. But what he's saying is, as they are teaching in line with what Moses has actually revealed, you need to listen to them. That's from God. And even if they're not living up to it, it's still good. It's teaching from God. And I think that's an important distinction. I just want to make that at this point in the lesson. That even when people are hypocritical, it doesn't mean that what they are saying is wrong. It means that they have an inconsistency that they're going to be judged for. But we have to be uh, discerning enough to be able to differentiate between wrong teaching and wrong living. And just because someone is living wrong doesn't mean what they're saying is wrong. And sometimes we have to not throw out the baby with the bathwater in that situation, be able to redeem the teaching. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 4, he says, They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. That's the idea that they make rules that are hard for people to keep. And they, they lay these heavy burdens on them, but then they don't do them themselves. So I can preach a mean lesson about how you guys are in such trouble. You need to do that. But if I don't intend to live up to what I'm actually teaching, I've just put the burden on you when I'm not going to even lift my finger to do it myself. Then he talks about a few uh, examples of how the Pharisees seek honor. You can see those starting in verse 5, verse 5 to 7 here. Verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. We need to take some time with that, right? The phylactery was a little box that would contain Scripture, and it would be worn around the the head between the eyes or uh, around the uh, upper part of the arm, so it's near the heart. And it's an application of Deuteronomy 6. It says this word shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You'll keep them close to you. And you can see how it's a very visual picture of how someone would say, I want the word of God near me in the most important way. But when you make the phylactery broad, meaning the the straps, okay, what, what are you doing? You're not making it broad so that the word can be closer to your heart. You're making it broad so that everybody will look at you and say, wow, look how pious he is. He's got this giant piece of scripture on his head. 
In the same way, you have that fringes in verse 5. Fringes were something commanded in the law as sort of a tassel, the end of your garment, so that when you look at it, you remember the commands of God, and that was something God expected. But when you make the fringe long, suddenly it's about notoriety instead of just piety. Then in verse 6, they loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbis by others. So you, you get the idea. Places of honor, you want to sit in the best place, and that was very much the way they sat. It, it was a thing that they did to seek to be in the highest place. And so they want the prestige, and they want people to notice them. They want to be called fancy names, that kind of thing. It is ultimately about power. It is ultimately about honor, and it's ultimately about people, not God. And Jesus says, my people need to be different. That is not what God wants. That is not why you should have phylacteries and fringes and rabbis. Not so that everybody can say it's a system by which we rank and compare ourselves, and now I know I'm better than everybody else because I get the most honor. So he tells them, verse 8, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, you're all brothers. Call no man your father, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. All right, so the problem here is not describing somebody, well, I have a father or I have a teacher. The problem here is about titles. The, the idea of sort of an honorary title that we, we say to communicate, you are better than me, okay? So we still do this, you know that, okay? We still talk about the esteemed so-and-so or sir or reverend, uh, the, the even doctor sometimes, okay? All of these are, are titles that are used to say this person is in some way special and above others. And Jesus is saying, be careful about how you throw those titles around and you be careful about how you take those titles on yourself because that is a sign, he says, that you're seeking honor and not humility. You want people to honor you and so you insist that they call you by names that show greater honor to you. Jesus says, the contrast, verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. So he says, God will do the exalting. And God will do it not necessarily now, not necessarily in front of all the people around me. That's something that I trust God will do in the future. But if I try to exalt myself, if I'm seeking that for myself, then I know that God is going to humble me. And that is a solemn promise. So let's take a step back from that. The idea here for you and me I don't think that we have any problems with phylacteries and fringes, okay? And I'm not sure we call each other rabbi, okay? I don't think those are really our flavor of problem. To me, this is something about careers and the feeling that we have to accomplish something in our careers. And then when we do accomplish something in our careers, we have to tell people about it. Not because I want you to celebrate with me because something good has happened to me, but because I need you to know how important I am. And if you don't understand it, you don't realize it, uh, maybe I just need to clue you in so that you can uh, approach me with the proper deference. I think social media can get involved in that, where we tend to portray our lives in the best possible way. I think jealousy becomes a part of this whole scene where we begin to look at other people as threats to our honor, and if you are getting honor I feel I deserve, then I can't handle that. That makes me upset. All of them are just symptoms of this same problem that I cannot be content trusting that God will give me the honor that I need. 
And Jesus shows us, and I think this is important to say, that even religion can be a tool for this evil desire. It's not somehow we have to check it at the doors of the church building. That it's very easy for us to say, I want the honor of my brothers and sisters. I want you to know how righteous I am, how good I am, how much I'm doing. I want you to esteem me. I want you to say you're worthy of being an elder or a deacon. I want you to say this is a great man. And in doing so, I've missed the point of what God wants from me. That's the whole thing. God wants me to seek humility, not honor. And if I want honor, let it be God's honor. That's the one that matters. That's the verdict that matters. And that's the thing I should be seeking. So the Pharisees missed the point. We don't want to miss the point that way. We want to seek humility and not honor. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You may notice uh, I don't have a verse 14 in my version. If you're reading from different versions, you might have a different verse there. It is in other places, in Mark's account, for example, uh, but it's not in the, the text of my version here. These verses focus on what we would call evangelism, what they would have called proselytizing, the idea of how their behavior impacts people who they teach. And he says in verse 13, you shut up the kingdom of heaven from people. The kingdom of heaven is that relationship with God that later on is going to be clear comes through Jesus. But he is saying people are trying to come to God and you won't let them. This probably has to do with the fact that they are establishing so many rules that it's hard for people. They want to come in, but they can't even begin to understand. Well, coming to God is just too challenging. I, I don't even know. I, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not that smart. I don't have all these rules laid out. I don't know. This may just be not for me. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. But there are some who do come in, and after they expend tremendous effort to win them over, what they do is just recreate them in their own image. In fact, worse. They give them a zeal for their own traditions and their own thoughts, and they end up not converting them to God, but to them, so that they become twice as much a child of hell as they are. So, uh, what we're going to say here is, the Pharisees missed the point, that we need to seek character change and not numbers. Numbers is the way I'm going to articulate that. The idea is, when we talk about how we express the faith to other people, there should be a goal behind that that is about them becoming what God wants them to be, not becoming what I think they should be. And I believe the Pharisees express something. I think Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees expresses something very important. That is that in evangelism, we can very easily let ourselves become the important part of evangelism that I need you to be like me. I need you to think like me. I need to remake you in my image. I need to talk to you about my doctrinal pet peeves. I need you to know my peculiar interpretations of things because if you're not like me, then I may be wasting my time. So you see what's happening. I have a zeal, but it's not really a zeal for connecting someone with God. And it's not really a zeal for character change in that person. What I have a zeal for is cloning. I want people to be like me. And if they're not like me, I feel like I failed. Jesus says, in doing that, you make them twice as much a child of hell 
as you are. So don't seek numbers. Don't seek to perpetuate your tribe. He is saying, if that's why you're teaching people, you're missing the point. You need to seek character change. So can I ask it this way? If we create a whole host of people who don't sing with instruments, who understand that Christ church is not a denomination, but they are nothing like God, what have we done? You see, there's something deeper that needs to be happening here than just perpetuating certain interpretations. Those things are important. I'm not denigrating them. But I am saying they are not the entirety of what evangelism is. We want people to connect with God and through that connection to become like God. That's the goal. Seek character change, not numbers. I'm not going to show you what we're doing yet. I'm going to read the verses with you. Verse 16. Verse 16. Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift of the, or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. Whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So the idea of swearing is invoking some higher power to give legitimacy to my word so that you believe me. So... The problem that people have in this time that Jesus is addressing is that people began to use sort of a circumlocution, a, a way to kind of, kind of name God but not name God. So often Jews would say heaven instead of God. Jesus does that, in fact. It's a way to say, I don't want to have to say the name of God. Well, what can happen is, well, I won't swear by God or by heaven. I'll, I'll, I'll swear by the temple. You know what? Not the temple, the gold of the temple. And then you come along and say, well, if I only swore by the gold of the temple, that's not really God after all. So maybe I don't really have to keep that one because I only swore by the gold of the temple. So what Jesus does in part is to say, now, first of all, everything is God's. He does this in Matthew 5 as well. Everything is God's. You can't say, well, I swear by the gold of the temple. What? I mean, really, why does the gold of the temple even matter? Because it's connected with God, okay? And then he's going to say in Matthew 5, you know, you're going to swear by certain parts of the earth or of heaven or your hair, and it all goes back to God. But the other part that is important here is what he says a couple of times. Uh, in verse 16, he says it, and then in verse 18, he says it. This phrase, it is nothing. It is nothing. So if you swear by a certain thing, it is nothing. What that means practically is you don't have to keep your word. If you swear by a certain thing, you can lie freely. It's only if you swear by other things that you have to tell the truth. And Jesus is saying, that's garbage. That there can be a, an oath you say where you can suddenly lie and not have to worry about it. So I think what Jesus is saying here is seek honesty, not loopholes. Don't try to find ways around saying what's true. Stop trying to find loopholes. Just be honest. God's goal is not that we try to find ways to keep from telling the truth. He wants us to be people who can be trusted by their word alone. Let our yes be yes, he says in Matthew 5. So for you and me, that means that honesty needs to be the priority all the time. I always want to tell the truth. I always want to avoid deception. I want to express myself accurately in whatever form that takes, which includes things like computers and legal documents and all of that. 
I need to say what I know to be true. I want my yes to be yes. And if I do that, I develop a reputation for honesty. But I am not. If God wants me to be honest, I'm not looking for ways around that. If I'm looking for loopholes and times and opportunities to not tell the truth, I am missing the point. All right. Verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. All right, so what we're going to say with this one is uh, seek justice, mercy, and faith, not precision. So Jesus uses tithing here as a picture of the doctrinal precision of the Pharisees. They had thought about everything. There was an argument, a debate in this time about just exactly what needed to be tithed. Typically, what was tithed was one-tenth of the first, uh, one-tenth of the harvest of foods, okay? But you notice the things that he's talking about in this verse are not really foods, right? At least not in the way, it's not like wheat or corn when you say something about mint, or cumin, okay? These are extremely small things, and they're only eaten in the sense that they're herbs that are used to season something. So, I just picture a Pharisee bent over his herbs, okay? You've got the little magnifying glass out so he can make sure you got one leaf, okay? That, that's the tenth leaf that's going to God, Okay? They're tithing, they are devoted, they are focused, but in all they're bending over with their uh, magnifying glass out, with all their focus on the tithe, they've neglected what Jesus says are the weightier matters. There are things that are more important than whether or not you tithe your herbs. And he talks about them in verse 23. He says, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Now, he specifies, and I want you to see this in verse 23. He says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He's saying, it's not either or. You can just say, oh, well, I'm going to do the right thing and then forget tithing. No, he says, you should have done the tithing. But he says, you can't so focus on the precision of it that you neglect the more important things. And I believe what he is saying is there is a limited amount of focus and emphasis you can have. You can only emphasize so many things. And at some point, if you're always emphasizing the things that matter less, then you've missed the point. And he illustrates that with this tremendous image in verse 24. He says, you have strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. So a gnat would be unclean. So the gnat flies into your drink. And you scurry to get it out of there, especially before it dies, because if it dies, it defiles your drink. You can't drink your drink. So you strain it, you try to get it out. Have you ever tried to do that? Get a, get a gnat or a little fly out of your drink. Okay. And you strain, and, and it's a hard thing, and you finally get it out. And then you drink, and you end up swallowing a camel. Okay. Camel is a giant, the largest unclean land animal that they would have known in that part of the world. Jesus is addressing emphasis here. Justice, mercy, and faith, or emphasis on precision. It is likely that if we focus on precision, we neglect things that are more important. So the question is, have we grasped the heart of our faith? The idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. 
the idea of justice and mercy and faith, which encompass not just what we do in this building on Sundays, but what we do when we leave this building in the hundreds of interactions we have with other people and that we have with God throughout our week. How are we acting in those situations? Is that the focus of what we're doing for God? Or is what we're doing for God something that we do only occasionally by pursuing some doctrinal precision? Now, to be sure, I want to say it again, he is not saying you can have one and not the other. He's saying they both need to be here. He is saying one matters more. They are weightier matters. It is more important. And if we think that doctrinal precision is more important, we've missed the point. That's what Jesus is saying. So we need both of those. Can I say it this way? If I can outline the appropriate ways for a local church to spend its money, but I give no attention to the lifestyle and the faith and the love that we promote, or if I can defend the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, but I don't mean it when I partake of it, if I can muster up a lot of arguments for a cappella singing, but I sing with no gratitude in my heart, I have missed the point. I have strained out a gnat and swallowed a camel. These things matter, but other things matter more. So justice, mercy, and faith mean everyday living that honors God, not just doctrinal details. All right, let's read in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So here Jesus is teaching us to seek inward purity and not outward purity. So there were actual debates among the rabbis in this day about whether you should clean the inside or the outside of the cup first. Okay, which one should you do? Which is hilarious. I mean, doesn't it make you wonder whether you would have been a good rabbi or not? I think I probably wouldn't have been a very good rabbi. I wouldn't want to argue about that. But Jesus takes that debate and turns it on his head and says, no, you do this in your spiritual life, not about how you handle cups, but in your spiritual life, you clean up the outside. And he uses two images. One is the cup. You clean up the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of all the yucky grime. I always picture a bowl of oatmeal that never got clean. You know how it gets all hard in there, okay? And, and so you clean the outside real good, but man, you haven't done much if you just clean the outside. And then the other image is the idea of a tomb that inside is full of this decay, and the outside is absolutely beautiful, okay? You whitewash it so that it will appear beautiful to men but inside is full of greed and self-indulgence and hypocrisy and lawlessness. The ugly part is below ground. And the other part that I think we miss sometimes in this image is that for the Jew, if you walk by a tomb, the tomb can defile you for a week because you become unclean by that proximity to a dead body. So it's not just that they are impure themselves, but they also defile other people and they don't even know it. The other people don't realize how they've been defiled by their contact with this evil person who has cleaned themselves up really well. So the idea here is that reform God wants to happen in our lives has to start inside. We don't do it to please men. 
I don't change my life to impress you. I change from the inside out, and that's the way that works. Once the inside is clean, then the outside becomes clean. If I am sincere and honest and convicted and devoted, then my life is going to show it. You will see it, but I don't do it for you. If you clean the inside of the dish, then the outside will get clean too. But if you don't clean the inside, then everything outside is just for show. And that's missing the point. Seek to be clean within and quit worrying so much about what people think about what's on the outside. And finally, I want to look at this last section, verse 29. Verse 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to, be escaped being sen- how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So the Pharisees built the tombs of the prophets, and the reason they did that is the prophets died because they were murdered. And they do that without really acknowledging the injustice that took place. In fact, the only thing they say, look at verse 30, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Now, isn't that interesting? Because these are the people who are about to do the same thing but worse. They're about to kill Jesus. This week, they're going to kill him. So they say one thing, and they end up doing another. They think one thing about themselves, but their behavior shows something different. So the last thing we're going to say about this chapter is to seek repentance and not just lamentation, not just sorrow about what's happened. See, they have missed the point that over and over again, Israel rejected the prophets. And they say, oh, isn't that sad? I can't believe Israel did that. And then they go on doing the same thing. And Jesus is saying to them, you are doing what they did. That's the problem. They have missed the point. God wants us to learn from mistakes, whether they're mistakes we have made or other people have made. Now, that's a national thing. I think that's part of what's going on here, to be able to look at what has happened in our nation that was bad and say, I don't want to duplicate that. That is also something we can do in our local church. Look at bad things that have happened and say, I don't want to go through that again. What can I do? And to look at our own personal lives and say, here's why I made that mistake. I don't want to do that again. But what we cannot do is say, oh, wasn't that sad? Oh, well, and just move on and continue to do the same thing. God is wanting us to do more. He wants us to repent. So it opens my eyes to the question, what things are going on in our time? that people in the future are going to feel that way about. Isn't it a shame what happened back in 2019? Isn't it a shame what they did? What are there things in my life that my kids are going to say, I can't believe my dad did that? And if I can know that now, then I can change that now. So the question is, where is the change? What's the plan when we see something that has gone wrong? Where is the growth? How are we going to be different in the future than we've been in the past? Those are the questions God wants us to ask. But if all we do is say, you know, let's build some tombs, let's have a sad service, and then we'll move on, keep and doing the same thing, then we miss the point. Seek repentance, not just sorrow. So if I were to sum up this chapter, which that's all we're going to have time to do this morning, I would say that this chapter is about the question, what does God want from me? 
and that I can't answer that question simply by asking, where did other people go wrong? That might help, but where other people went wrong is not necessarily what, what does God want from me. It's not what do I not like in other people. It's not what do I like. It's not as long as I'm trying, it's fine, because you have a lot of people here who are trying, and it's not fine. The question is, what does God want from me? And we would do well, please hear me, we would do well to remember that sometimes our efforts to serve God get in the way of us hearing what God really wants from us. That's what happened with the Pharisees. So it takes some introspection and some honesty to seek and follow the will of God and not to miss the point. So I challenge you to think through that and we'll be dismissed for our classes. Thank you.